Amen. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God? Amen. Man, absolutely. Yes. You know, it's just, it's always a special day, you know, when you can gather around, you know, these waters. And, you know, it's, it's something that we talk about as I would meet with these individuals is there's no power in these waters, right? Uh, the, the only liquid that there's power is in the blood of Jesus. And, and that's what saves us. But to come into the waters of baptism, you know, again, it, you know, it, I just, I commend each one. You know, in a room this size and with family and friends, I mean, to publicly profess Christ is uh, an awesome thing. And I believe God uh, honors that, blesses that, and uses that. And so, you know, regardless of what brought you here today, you know, maybe you're here because, you know, you know someone being baptized. Maybe it's family or, or friends. Um, you know, I don't believe that, that, that anything's random or a coincidence. And so I believe that God has brought us into this place uh, for a purpose. And I'm excited uh, to stand before you this morning with this passage of Scripture. And so if you would take your Bibles with me and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, for those who have been with us, you know we've been going through this study of Luke really all the way back to before Christmas. Uh, we kind of launched it at the beginning of December, chapter 1, chapter 2, the birth narratives of Christ. And we've just stayed in it. And so the series title is Jesus. I mean, the, the goal is to just simply walk through this gospel uh, and fall deeper in love with Jesus, to, to discover even more about Jesus, to see Christ maybe in ways that we've never seen him before. And so we know that, you know, as we've been walking through these chapters, um, for those of you who, who kind of haven't been with us, this, you know, the author here is Luke. He's a Gentile physician. Uh, someone who is not even of the Jewish descent. And so as he writes the gospel of Luke, he writes it almost as if he's building his case. You know, from chapter 1 to chapter 2 to chapter 3 to chapter 4 to chapter 5, I mean, it's building this case of that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is truly the Son of God, that he is the one prophesied in the Old Testament over 700 years before his birth. Isaiah 53, this is Jesus. Isaiah 61, this is Jesus. And so he builds this case all the way from chapter 1 and through. And we see the, the, the affirmation of Christ, right? The affirmation of Christ from the angels, the affirmation of Christ from the shepherds, from uh, the wise men, uh, from godly men and women in the temple. Uh, the affirmation of Christ even from John the Baptist as the forerunner, as the one who would prepare the way, the one who baptizes Jesus there at the Jordan. And then there at the Jordan, even the affirmation of the Father. As there's only two times in the New Testament where we see the Father speak from heaven. And Jesus' baptism and the, the transfiguration. But he speaks from heaven and says what? This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Immediately, he's led into the wilderness. Again, not a random thing. Led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, being submissive to the leading of the Spirit, being submissive to the will of the Father. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He endures temptation, and he overcomes. The Bible tells us that he then begins his earthly ministry. And so there's the shift of Luke, now from developing the person of Christ to now showing us and demonstrating the power of Christ. As we saw last week in chapter 4 of his power, authority, even over the unseen world. That although there were people in the world that were questioning the validity of Jesus, one thing that you will never find is Satan or the demons themselves questioning the validity of Jesus. Every time they identify him who, as, as who he is, truly you are the Holy One, the Holy Offspring, the Son of God. And so this morning we're going to go to five. We're going to skip a couple passages there in Luke 4. We'll come back because there's the healing of Peter's mother-in-law at the end of chapter 4. There's also a couple verses that speak of his preaching, his teaching, uh, his continued healing and the casting of, of, of unclean spirits. And then after chapter 5, verse 11, there, it moves into some other miracles, the healing of the leper, the paralytic. And so we'll look at some of those passages next week. But this morning I want us to look at a, a passage that I'm sure many of you have seen before. 
Uh, this is one of those familiar passages. You know, again, you go back to, if you've been in the church a long time, this is one of those vacation Bible school Bible studies of Jesus calling these disciples and the great miracle that he performs there at the shore of Galilee. I want to invite you to stand with me in reverence to reading God's word. The title of the message this morning is Forsaking All. What do we do when we encounter the true Savior? And that's what happens in this passage. You're going to see quite the transition here in the heart of Peter. Who is Simon beforehand, but now all of a sudden Peter, right? And so it's in a lot of ways similar to Saul Paul, right? You're, you're going to see this great transition in the heart of this man Peter. But the question is this, what happens to us when we encounter Jesus? How does it impact us? How does it change our lives? Not only the course of our lives, but the purpose of our lives. And in this passage, we see both of those things. So Luke chapter 5, the title of the message this morning is Forsaking All. Beginning in verse 1. <coughs> I tried, excuse me. Luke 5. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. So the Bible says this. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him, word is getting out of this Jesus. The healing, the teaching, the preaching. Uh, the, the multitudes pressed around about him to hear the word of God. Don't miss that. We'll come back to that. And they stood by the Sea of Galilee. Rather than pronouncing that, I'll just say the Sea of Galilee because that's the Sea of Galilee. Ganes, Sea of Galilee. Verse 2. And saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Notice how he refers to him, Simon. And asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. So you can kind of picture the scene, right? The crowd's gathering. There's, he's backing up almost into the shore, into the water. And so the crowd is gathering. So he climbs into a boat now. And he begins to preach and teach. It says in verse 4, When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out deep and let your nets down for a catch. But Simon answered and said, you'll find that familiar passage right there all throughout the New Testament. But Simon answered and said, nobody asked for Simon to answer and say anything. Jesus was just telling him to do something. But Simon had to voice his opinion. I can't even imagine what that would be like to not be able to control your mouth. Look at what it says. (laughs) But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night, caught nothing. Nevertheless, passive aggressive much, Simon, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish. Now, again, you have to really dig here because you can't just pass by that. They caught an amount of fish that they had never caught before. It wasn't like this was just a good catch. This went beyond that. It was recognizable by every single person there that this was a miracle that had taken place. Simon answered and said, nevertheless, at your word. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. Verse 7. So they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down. Notice his response that Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were there with him were astonished at the catch of the fish which had taken place. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, notice this. Do not be afraid. Do not be terrified. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to the land, here's their response. They forsook all and followed him. Join with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we can gather this morning and open the word of God freely. Lord, I thank you in a military community. I thank you for the men and women Lord, who have answered the call to protect that freedom that we have. And we thank you for them and their families. 
and for the freedom that we have to open your word in this place. And Lord, we believe that this book contains life. That, Lord, this is not just merely a historical book, Lord, or even a a philosophical book, Lord, but this is a book that is alive. That there's power in these words because it reveals your story. From Genesis to Revelation, we see a story centered upon your son. And so, Lord, this morning we pray that, Lord, as we look at this passage, Lord, as we put our lives in view of this passage, Lord, may you... Reveal to us, first and foremost, do we know you? And second of all, Lord, are we living for you? Are we about our own stuff? Are we, are we seeking to fulfill the purpose that you have for our lives? You have given us the message. You have given us the truth. You have given us the good news. And it's in a person. It's not in a religion. It's not in a church. It's not even in an ordinance of baptism. It's in Christ. And so, Lord, this morning, may Christ be heard. May Christ be seen. May the good news of Jesus Christ, Lord, be what penetrates our hearts. May we be different, Lord. May we not just come to church today and grab coffee and sing some songs and open your word, but, Lord, may we be transformed by your words. May you receive the honor and glory. We pray it, we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we know that in the passage that we looked at last week, we see the authority of Jesus, right? It's one of those things that we saw last week in him demanding the unclean spirit to leave the man in the Son of God. The authority of Jesus, that even in the unseen world, that Jesus has authority and power. Well, now Luke transitions to the seen world, the natural world. And we know that this is not the only occasion, right? We know that all throughout the gospel accounts, there are situations where Jesus demonstrates his power. Where Jesus demonstrates his power even over creation. But he he uses fishing here. How many fishermen out here are fishing ladies? Let me say, anybody who enjoys fishing? Is that what I call you guys, fishing ladies, fishermen, fisherwomen? Well, I don't know. I, I, I used to go fishing until I hooked my dad in the eye. True story. I hooked my dad in his eyelid when I was 12, and all of a sudden, the amount of time that he would take me finish slowly began to diminish at that time. My mom loves going fishing. My mom still to this day has like this little luggage rack thing that she's kind of worked up that has wheels on it and a cooler, and she rolls it to a pier, and she'll sit on that cooler, and she'll fish for hours upon a pier. I remember going with her one time, and and I caught a, a little sand shark, like a little baby sand shark. And, and she's like, you're all right? And I'm like, no, nah, Ma, I need you to take this, this shark off my hook for me. And she's like, why? I'm like, I don't want to touch that thing, man. Like, it's, it's all kind of rough feeling. And she said, man up, boy. That's what she said to me. She said, man up, boy. She hasn't taken me fishing since that time. So if you want to take me fishing, I'll go with you. You bait my hook. You take off my, my fish. I will go fishing with you, okay? But it's interesting that Jesus would use this illustration, right? He paints this picture, and he's the master of that. I mean, we see this, right? I mean, we see this picture, and I kind of have this vision of even like a year ago when, when the Lord allowed Pastor Dave and I to travel to Africa to meet Pastor Kyle and our two guys who were there, and, and you know, you preach out in the open. You know, many a times what you're doing is you're preaching by a creek or you're preaching by a mountain, and, and it's interesting how even in that setting, you'll begin to kind of look for things as illustrations. Well, we see Jesus do this all the time. He is the master illustrator. You know, again, these people have never heard teaching like this. Obviously, this is the word that was with God. Now the word of God in physical form speaking audibly the word of God. They had never heard clarity like this. They had never heard power like this, authority like this, conviction like this. So much so that the crowds begin to press in around him. He's now drawing a crowd. 
Again, it's one thing to be captivated by Jesus. It's another thing to surrender your life and heart to Jesus and be changed by Jesus. We see a lot of the crowd, right? They're gathering. Why? Because he's doing miracles. He's healing people. And so, man, they're bringing in their sick loved ones. And, hey, they, they want to see what this guy's about. They want to hear what this guy's about. And he uses the illustration of fishing to drive home really the main reason why he's there. And if you know Luke, right, he's building his case from chapter 1, 2, 3, 4. I mean, he's building his case that this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. And so he's continuing to affirm that. And we see that, right? His focus now moves from the person of Christ to now the power of Christ. But the question is this. The question is this. How do we know that Jesus was God? To the religious leaders of this time, how did they know that Jesus was God? Well, I think for many of us, or many of them who would say, well, I know the Old Testament. I know what I was taught from the very beginning. I know the Torah. Uh, The way we know that someone is God is by the characteristics of God, the attributes of God. If Jesus was truly God, and he claims to be, right, fully man, fully God, again, that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but he claims to be, if you you desire to see the, 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 the Father, then look at me, is what he says. If you want to see God, if you want to hear God, look upon me, listen to me. You're going to see God. And so how do we know? Well, Luke's building that case. Many of this being Jewish people who are gathered here by the Sea of Galilee. And so if this is truly Christ, then he's going to demonstrate the characteristics of God. Well, let's go back to the Old Testament. If I asked you right now, and many of you have done this study before, the attributes of God, the attributes of God, there are many things that we could list. But there are five main ones, I would dare to say. If you go back and you study the Old Testament, and we said, okay, well, who is God? Well, the Bible declares he is truth, that he is true. The Bible declares that he is all-knowing, right? That there is nothing beyond the knowledge of God, the sovereignty of God, the providence of God. The Bible declares that he's all-powerful. So we we have his omniscience, that he's all-knowing. His his omnipotency, is that the right way to say it? That he's all-powerful. Is that right? Omnipotency. There we go. It's been a long day. Here we go. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's truth. He's holy, right? I mean, the Bible declares that in the Old Testament, that he's merciful. So just take those five attributes right there, the five characteristics of God. He is truth. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is holy. He is merciful. And what Luke does is he builds his case just with this story right here, 11 verses of Scripture. And what he does is he allows us to see those attributes, those characteristics in Christ. So notice what happens here. Let's go at the very beginning, verse 1 and 2. Look at what he does. He's already declared that he is truth, right? We know that every time Jesus spoke, the crowds were amazed. They were astonished. They were dumbfounded at the authority, at the truth that he was speaking. Look at verse 1. So it was as the multitude pressed about him. Notice this phrase, to hear the word of God. The literal translation in the Greek language is they pressed to listen to the word that comes from God. It's so cool when you look at that original language. This is what it says. That the crowd had gathered to pressing around Jesus to hear the words that were coming from God. And that, again, is Luke's writing from his perspective that this was God speaking. That every single time Jesus opened his mouth, he was speaking the words of God. And Jesus declares that. We see that all throughout the Gospels. John 12, 44, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If you jump down to verse 49 of John 12, he says this, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me. 
has given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And so again, we see this. Jesus laying down his prerogatives as God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but walking in fulfilling the purpose, the will of the Father. Therefore, every action, every word was truth given to him from the Father. Luke builds upon this. And he paints this scene of Jesus gathering to the point that he's backing up in, even into the waters because there's so many people there. You can kind of picture this amphitheater, right? As, as Jesus is backing up into the waters, as he's speaking, the sound of his words bouncing off the water. And now the crowds gathered on the shore. And who knows how many people are standing there, sitting there, astonished at the words of this man. Luke goes on to build his case. Look at verse 2 and 3. Jesus saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little bit from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. What is he doing? He is speaking truth. He is speaking words of life. No wonder they were astonished. No wonder they were moved. These were words that bring us to be spiritually dead and to being spiritually alive. The Bible says that he spoke as no man has ever spoken. They see truth in Jesus. But not only is he the divine truth, but it also speaks of his divine knowledge. Look at verse 4. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out deep and let your nest down for a catch. But Simon answered and said... Master, we have toiled all night, caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. I love Peter. I just love Peter. I do. I relate to Peter. I relate to Peter. Have you ever caught yourself giving advice to God? If you've done that before, say amen. Amen. And if you didn't say amen, you just lied, asked for forgiveness. We've all done that before. And we have a tendency to sometimes do it in our prayers. Okay, God, I don't know if you see my life right now, but maybe you've been distracted. And so let, let me inform you of what's going on with me. Let me, let me just let you know. And, and let me inform you of, of how I need this to play out. Now, for your will, for your glory, but this is the way God, take notes, God, take notes, this is the way it needs to play out. I love Peter because there's no filter there, and I can relate to that. I have people in my life who can relate to that. No names being spoken, but I can relate to that. Of just, hey, it comes to mind and sometimes out. And so here is God saying, hey, go let down the nets. Peter says, well, I'm going to give my opinion. And what's crazy about it is he actually had a pretty valid point. Again, to understand what's happening here, these were fishermen, lifelong fishermen. And here's this carpenter from Nazareth. I mean, he acknowledges him as rabbi. He acknowledges him as teacher. And so he acknowledges him as authority. But here's Peter saying, come on, man, we, we know a little bit better than you. First of all, you don't fish during the day, right? I mean, that's just a known. Sea of Galilee, it's hot during the day. The fish do not come to the surface during the day. They go down to the bottom. And so, therefore, the ideal time to fish is what? At night. Peter says, Jesus, you ain't done this fishing thing too much. Let, let, let me enlighten you of how the fish thing works. But then it also says that they're cleaning their nets. And we can't take that lightly. They're not just simply over there washing nets. I mean, you've got to understand the physical to- toil that this was. I mean, these guys have been fishing all night long. And, and many describe it as this. That a lot of times there would be two boats. A lot of times there was a large boat and a small boat. And they would take a net, many times sometimes going as deep as a half a mile. And that small boat would circle around and they would circle the net and then they would gather the fish. And so Peter makes a valid point. He says, Jesus, we, we've been out there all night. We fished at the time that we were supposed to fish and we caught nothing. But nevertheless, passive aggressive, nevertheless... You're telling us to do it, we'll do it. 
And what Jesus does is he reveals his divine knowledge. And we see this play out in many other places throughout the New Testament. That he knows what nobody else could know. He puts on display his supernatural knowledge. Verse 6 says, And when they had done what, they told, what he told them to do, they caught a great number of fish that their nets were breaking, that this was a miracle that was taking place. This wasn't just something that they could go back and tell their buddies about, that, hey, you should have seen this great catch. No, it would have been, man, I have done this my entire life. My father's done this his entire life. My grandfather's done this their entire lives. We have never seen anything like it. And he shows his divine knowledge that he's all-knowing, that he is God in human form. Well, this plays out in a couple of different places. Let me give you a couple of passages. I'd encourage you to go back and even read through some of these passages today, throughout this week. It's pretty cool to see John 1, 43. We see it play out here. In the calling of Nathanael as a disciple, the Bible says this, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him. The one that Moses spoke of, the one that the law spoke of, that the prophets spoke of, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel responds, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see for yourself. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said to him, before knowledge of Christ, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Verse 48, Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered verse 50 and said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? But listen, you will see greater things than these. He's fully God. Not only in the fact that he is truth and that he speaks truth, that he's fully God in his knowledge. And the fact that he knows all. That he sees all. And the Bible says even in the, the final weeks of his life, especially that final week of his life, you see this really come to play. I think of Mark 14. If you remember that story where Jesus sends his disciples to go find a place for them to gather for the Passover. If you remember that story, it says this in verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Jesus didn't talk to that guy. This is the foreknowledge of Christ. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room, where I, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Verse 15, and he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and what? And found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. I'm always encouraged by the disciples. I know encouraged because I know for me so many times it's like, Lord, forgive me that it takes me so long to get things. But yet these were men who walked beside Jesus for three and a half years. And even in the final week of their life, man, they were still struggling with trying to wrap their minds around things. And you have this encounter in John 16, verse 29. His disciples said, now you are speaking plainly, not using figurative speech. Now we know that what? You know all things, that you are divine knowledge and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Like I look at that and if I was Jesus, I would have smacked in the disciples right in the head, right there. This is why you believe. You didn't believe when I fed over 20,000 people. You didn't believe when I flooded the boats with the fish. You didn't believe when I was casting out demons. You didn't believe when I was healing the blind, healing the sick. But thank goodness I'm not Jesus. Can I get an amen? Because I would have kicked them in their head for that one right there. But because you know all things, finally, Jesus, we believe you. He puts on display on the shore of Galilee. This is God. This is not just merely a teacher. 
This is not just merely a, 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 a rabbi. This is God. And we see it, right? We saw it last week. I mean, the world is always quick to question that, no, is that really the Son of God? Did Jesus really take human form? I, I can't wrap my mind around it. Guess what? I can't either. And these people couldn't either. But he put on display the attributes, the characteristics of God in his divine truth, in his divine knowledge, but in his divine power. Look at verse 6. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets were breaking. Listen, it's one thing to know where the fish are. It's another thing to have the power to gather them there. And verse 6 says they caught a great number of fish. These men had fished their entire lives, and they had never seen anything like this. Not only do they see the, the, the knowledge of Christ, they see the power of Christ. If you jump down to verse 9, you see the consistent theme throughout, right? For he, Peter, and all who were with him were what? Were astonished, amazed, shocked, dumbfounded. But what a tragedy that there were men and women in that audience that would come and be amazed by the words of Jesus, amazed by the knowledge of Jesus, amazed by the power of Jesus, and yet still leave and walk away and say, yeah, I don't know I can surrender, surrender my life to him. Because he doesn't look the way I think he should look. Does it sound familiar? He's not doing the things in my life that I think he should do. So I don't know that I can really surrender and submit my life to this guy. But yet on display, Jesus shows the attributes of God. Go back to verse 6 and 7. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish. Their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they began to sink. This is beyond anything they'd ever experienced. This went beyond any possible human explanation. Not only did Jesus know the location of the fish, he commanded the fish to be exactly where he wanted them to be, and he commanded them to be there in massive numbers. Listen, it's safe to say that many of the people gathered on the shore of Galilee, hey, they knew Old Testament God. They had been studying since they were a child. They knew the Old Testament, El Shaddai, God the Almighty One, that the God that these, they serve and worship is the God that not only created creation, but He is the God who has authority over creation. They knew that that was God. And yet here was Jesus, and we know this isn't the only time, right? Jesus calming the storm. I mean, you go back to the parting of the Red Sea. They recognize, okay, God has authority over His creation. He can do whatever He wants. And even Nehemiah proclaims that in Nehemiah 9, 6, You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, the heavens and the earth with all of their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. Jesus puts on his display divine truth, divine knowledge, divine power. Now notice this interaction. His divine holiness. Look at verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at his knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Right? It's, it's kind of similar to like John the Baptist. Right? When John the Baptist it says initially he didn't recognize Jesus, but when he finally realizes, whoa, this is Christ. This is God in human form. What does he say? He says, I'm not worthy to baptize you. Depart from me. I am a sinner. I'm not even worthy to carry the strap of your sandal. Here is Peter, now seen on display. Now again, we know that Peter has been witnessing what Christ has been doing. He witnessed the healing of his mother-in-law. We know that here is he witnessing this great miracle, but it's now when he comes face to face and he sees himself before God, things change. Things change. When you begin to view yourself in the lens of where you stand before God, not before other people. 
Listen, it's, 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 it's comforting for us to go, you know what, I, I, I'm okay, right? I know some of them people that go to River Oak. I've seen the magnets on their car. They can't drive, right? I, I, I don't need to go down there. They're, that person cut me off on the interstate. Bunch of hypocrites at that church. Listen, as long as we're comparing ourselves to each other, we're okay. Because, hey, we're, we, can, we can justify that. I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not as bad as my crazy uncle, right? I'm not as bad as those people. But when you begin to look at yourself through the lens of where you stand before God, that's a different ballgame. For the first time, here is Peter now looking at himself through the lens of where he stood before a holy God. And the Bible says immediately he falls down in terror to the knees of Jesus and, and, and cries out, depart from me. I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. What was it that Jesus wanted Peter to see? Yes, he wanted to see in all the disciples and all the people. He wanted them to see that, yes, he was God in human form, that he was truth, that he was all-knowing, that he was all-powerful. But he wanted Peter to see his own heart. I mean, right? That's why Jesus came, right? We, we know that, that the first sermon he preaches, he, he rolls open the scroll of Isaiah 61, and he reads those words that I have come to set the captives free. I have come to, to heal the broken. I have come to give sight to the blind. What is he speaking of? He is speaking of a spiritual condition, but it's not until we recognize our spiritual condition that we can respond to a Savior. Peter recognizes his spiritual condition, and he sees that he is nothing but a dirty sinner in the presence of a holy God. Listen, that's the place of power. When you come to that place broken, and you see yourself for what you are before the holy throne of God, what happens? It's overwhelming, right? I mean, it's overwhelming because we we finally get a picture of what we truly deserve. We finally get a picture that God, hey, by your grace and by your mercy, rather than giving me what I deserve, you've provided a way. And it puts us in a position to not only see the gap there between our sins and the throne of God, but to see that, man, there is nothing that I can do to bridge that gap. That's why Jesus says what? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's why he's here. John 3, 16, right? We can quote it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Peter is standing in the holy presence of God and he thinks condemnation. He thinks, man, I'm a sinner in the presence of the holy Christ. Depart from me. But look at the mercy. Look at the heart of Jesus. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be terrified. I have not come to condemn. I have come to save. And listen, you want to see mercy. Not only have I come to save, I have come to save you and also empower you to be used in the purpose of saving others. How humbling that a guilty sinner before the throne of God could stand. And rather than experiencing the wrath and judgment of God, experience the love of God. That not brings them to condemnation, but salvation. But now in the grace of God to say, Lord, you want to use me? You want my life to be a testimony to others? You want my words to be truth in the life of others? In the place that I work and in the place where I live and in my family and in my home? That not only would you save me, you desire to employ me in the work of ministry? Such mercy. Look at verse 10. Do not be afraid. Literally, stop being terrified. 
From now on, you will catch men. He says, Peter, up until now, you have caught fish for the purpose of killing them. But now you will catch men for the purpose of giving them life in me. And notice how they responded. Verse 11. Here's the question for all of us today. How do we respond in the face of a Savior? Verse 11. So when they had brought their boats to the land, what does it say? They forsook all. And followed him. I love this, right? I mean, uh, a lot of people would have come to the shore and said, "Man, man, this guy's this guy's on to something, right? We should start fishing during the day, right? I mean, let's let's apply this to our to our job. Let's apply this to our income. Let's uh, let's apply this to our livelihood. I mean, this is what we're called to do. We can still talk about Jesus while we're fishing, right? We can still do that. But that's not what you find. You find men who are so overwhelmed by God's love, by God's grace, that they come before them and say, hey, whatever you ask me to do, right? I mean, that's the definition of faith. Ephesians 2.8 says what? For by grace you have been saved through, say it with me, through faith. Many of you have heard the acronym, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all what? I trust him. God, you're calling me to now be fishers of men. There's no opinion of Peter after this. At least it's not responded. It's not recorded forsook all and followed him. Remember years ago in seminary, my professor would always say, okay, at the end of every passage, at the end of every sermon, the question has to be, what does this mean for me? What does it mean for us? Number one, first question I would ask, do you know this Jesus? Have you encountered this Savior? Because listen, when you study Scripture, and I'd encourage you, if you're still skeptical, man, spend time in the first four books of this Bible, the New Testament page after page revealing that this wasn't just merely another human being. He was human. This was God. And it's revealed in the truth that he lived. It's revealed in the truth that he spoke. It's revealed in his divine knowledge. It's revealed in his divine power. It's revealed in his holiness and the fact that he was sinless and perfect, but it's revealed in his mercy that he says, I've not come to condemn. You don't have to be terrified. The guilt no longer has to overweigh you. Now you can stand free, forgiven by my grace, by my mercy, covered by my blood. You're not trying to earn your way into heaven because trust me, there's nothing you can do to earn your way into heaven. There's one way in to heaven and it's through a relationship with the one who came and lived and died and rose again. And by the way, not only do I want to save you, not only do I want to save you, I want to use you. People say you can't take this stuff to heaven with you. No, a lot of things you can't. Most things you can't. There is something we can. People. What is this? It's an eternal perspective versus the temporary. To look beyond just the mundane of our day, right? Man, my life, my struggles. But no, this, this goes beyond that. God, you have me here for a reason? There's eternal ramifications in my life lived before you, in my life and in the life of others? In the face of a Savior, to say, Jesus, how could I not forsake all and follow you? Because I know what I deserve. I know what the end of my story should be. But God demonstrates his mercy, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what this book is about. Every head bowed and every eye closed. You know, there's such a commissioning here of the church, is what we find. The commissioning for us as believers to recognize first and foremost that God has given us the message, He has given us the truth, He has given us His word, He has given us His Son. We have a great responsibility. 
and how we live before this world and how we speak before this world. So here's a great question. Do our lives point to Jesus? Could it be said that those closest to you would say, you know what, no, they're not perfect. They're changed, different. I know what used to dominate their lives and the direction they were going, but man, Christ has changed them and given them a new life, a new heart. It's a commissioning for us to recognize that it's only by Jesus' power, it's only by Jesus' authority, but he has called us to go fishing. Not for fish, but for people. And he's given us the truth of the gospel. What does it require? Well, we see it played out right here in this passage. It requires the speaking, the teaching of truth. It requires obedience to the commands of Christ. It requires humility, as we see in Peter's response. But it requires Matthew 6.33. It says what? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. They forsook all, recognizing there is nothing that this world offers that even comes close to not only knowing Jesus, but walking with Him, being used by Him, being used and even bringing others to Him. Lord, may I not just live for the things that I can see with my human eyes, but the eternal things that do not fade away. To look beyond my storms, to look beyond my struggles, and to see a Savior who has overcome and who is sitting upon the throne. Overwhelmed, captivated, but changed every day. I'm going to ask you right where you are just to stand where you are, if you would. As we enter into this time of invitation, our pastors are up front. Our spiritual response team is here. Listen, this is a two-front calling. Number one, I ask you, man, if today was the day, a point of time to be born, a point of time to die, if today was the day, do you have the assurance of knowing, standing before the throne of God, that you're covered by the blood of Jesus? Not anything that you've done but what Christ has done. You've responded to what Christ has done. You've surrendered to what Christ has done. To believers in this place, where does he fall on our list of priorities? Here's the convicting part. How intentional are we in not only seeking the Lord, but being used in the lives of others for the Lord? Or do we find ourselves being distracted, consumed by things that have no eternal value? whatsoever. So as the Lord speaks to your heart, and as we respond, our Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you praise for who you are. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did come into your own creation, demonstrating your power, demonstrating your knowledge, demonstrating your holiness, but demonstrating your mercy. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of eternal life. We thank you, Lord, There's nothing random here. Nothing's a coincidence. Lord, you use all things. And what the enemy even intends for evil, you use for good and for your glory. Brokenness aside, Lord, when we take those things and we lay it at your feet, Lord, you create a masterpiece. But Lord, we got to take our hands off. And that's hard. 
So, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, give us courage. Give us boldness each day to walk in freedom, the life that you've called us to live, a life that reflects your glory, your power. We give you praise for what you've done. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray and all God's people say.